Fragility, emotional reasoning and the us-versus-them perspective. Are words violent? Should we legislate morality, preferences, or feelings? These things, and so much more on this episode of Awesome Today. Awesome Today, is a mostly daily show about stuff. Don't overcomplicate it. It's barely edited and sometimes offensive. Enjoy it, and have an awesome today. Okay, hi. Hello, my bride of 22 plus years. Now we're on the plus side. We're on the plus side. All right. How are you? You know what? I'm doing good. And I know that right now, in your mind and in your heart, there's a lot of distractions. (laughs) Yes. But I'm here to bring you into this safe space. I'm thankful for this safe space, even if we're not on a campus. Everything else (laughs) can wait. There is nothing more... That's true. Urgent and important than you and I engaging right now. Thank you for that. We are in the middle. It's June 15th, so we're yep. smack in the middle of June. But it's June 16th. No, it's June 15th for you guys. That's it's June saying. 14th in this moment of recording. In this moment of recording. It's yeah. June. See, I was, gonna, I was trying to roll with the fact that when they I'm watch this, you. it's June 15th. I'm with you. I roll slowly. Okay. Call me whatever you will. In light of this whole paradox we live in, mm-hmm. okay, so we've, yeah, we got a lot of stuff going on with right. anniversary, multiple birthdays, yes. um, Father's Day, necessary visits to family that yes. allows them to let us do all the work so they can celebrate or feel like they're celebrating something for us. It's like there's a disconnect there, but it's what you do it's when you have family. It's what you do with family. So in light of all that, it's been super chaotic. Yeah. As any human, all of you listeners know chaos in your lives, I'm sure. Yes. So we're not claiming uniqueness. We're No. We're solidarity. reaching out to you in solidarity. Right. Um, and in that vein, let me just say, I did briefly look through events for the 15th. Oh, you did? Historical things. There was nothing that really stirred my inner passion. Okay. But there was something that would have been for the 14th that we were looking at on the 13th yes. to record for the 14th that I just found so fascinating. I can't walk by it for the next 364 days and act like it ain't there. Okay. This was, it's, as with most things that I'm involved in, it requires more words probably than are necessary. So the 14th was celebration of, I believe it was the first commercial or commercially designed for business computer, which was the ENIAC 1, mm-hmm. I think, or Uni- Univac, ENIAC something. Something. It doesn't really matter because that's not really what it's about. As I looked at that, I began to, I was curious, which is a, a wonderful place to be in life, right? Yes. Curiosity and go look and satisfy that. Right. Um I was thinking about, well, what were the capabilities of that punch card computer and all of that? And what I discovered through just a brief run through the interwebs was that not necessarily true to that thing, which I think was early 50s. Okay. um, But at the time that the Apollo missions landed the first human being on the moon, Mm -hmm. that the computers used to complete that mission that the iPhone 5, which were several generations past, right? yes. the iPhone 5 was effectively 
120 million times as powerful as the entirety of NASA's computers at that time. That's insane. Which says then with an iPhone 10, 11, whatever it is, that I feel confident that we could simultaneously run with our phones 120 million Apollo missions and either record another episode of Awesome Today or and or check Facebook statuses and keep up to date with all of that. So we're not living up to our full technology potential is what you're saying. Plainly. Okay. Plainly. One more thing to feel guilty about. We're all worried about going to Mars. How come there's not 120,000 people per phone on the moon? Come on! Oh my goodness. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. Yeah. Okay. So back into the book, The Coddling of the American Book. Yes. Um, I'm going to give just a little bit of background before we hit this this first point. Here. Okay. And we are going to try here rapidly to cover two yes. chapters, uh, four and five, with which make up section two yes. or part two of the book. Right. Excuse me. I just shared a burp with you free of charge. I held it in. It's good. It's good so, for me. It's good for you. Yes. So just to review really quickly, because yeah. I had forgotten this part yeah, yeah. one, which is the first three chapters. Those are called the three bad ideas. And that's where the authors break down some of these uh, ideas that have fallen into vogue, I guess you could say, in Mm -hmm. culture in recent years. And then part two, which is chapters four and five, those were some bad ideas in action. What were the first three bad ideas? Um, That... Something about feelings or everything, or always trust your feelings. They're they're here. Oh, they're right there. Oh, the untruth of fragility, and it was what doesn't kill you makes you weaker or something like that? Something, yeah. It was like the opposite of the the idiom that we know. Yes. What doesn't kill you. Fragility versus anti-fragility. Yes, yes. Okay. Uh, The second was the untruth of emotional reasoning, right? Mm -hmm, And then mm -hmm. the third was the untruth of us versus them. Yes, which is the... The common enemy. Yes, common enemy versus common humanity. Yeah. 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 Okay. So then moving into bad ideas in action, chapter four is intimidation and violence. Yes. Um, And the first thing that he references goes back to 2017, which isn't that long ago, except that a whole lot. A whole lot happened, right? It wasn't that long ago, technically, but in a lot of ways, it feels like it was a long time ago. Indeed, because as the snowball rolls, it gets seemingly faster. Yes. Um, Milo Yiannopoulos, Mm -hmm. is that pronounced correctly? Your guess is as good as mine on that. I think that's how you say it. Um, Definitively, and and self-admittedly, Milo was a troll. Yeah, he calls himself that. He calls himself a troll. Yes. And as unpleasant... As a troll is, it is a protected right mm-hmm. to be a troll if you'd like to be. Yeah. Freedom of speech, all of that. Yeah. Um, there's no there's no true violation of rights that he gets to speak. But we have, in, in February 1st of 2017, we have the Milo Riot, as it's now called, at UC Berkeley. And this was a major shift in campus protests. Violence was used, and successfully, to stop Milo's speech. People were injured, and there were, as far as we can tell, 
no costs to those who were violent. Mm -hmm. Some students later justified the violence as a legitimate form of self-defense to prevent speech that they said was violent. Right. It's it's mind-numbing to me that speech can be violent. And the authors really walk us down this path of um, assessing what do words mean and how the context is it no concept creep mm-hmm. that they talk about earlier in the book can shift cause language shifts over time. And so, yes, the, the, the talks that he gave themselves were violent. I like the author refuse to accept that words are violent. Words can be hateful mm-hmm. and nasty and ugly but words are not violent. Violent is a physical thing, period. Right. There's just a whole mess of things here, and, and it ties into these concepts that we've already discussed as well, that being being uncomfortable and not liking something doesn't mean that it's causing reasonable trauma, and it certainly flies in the face of anti-fragility right. to just know we're not going to hear anything about all this because it, it's violent towards people. No, it's not. Right. I think where this is somewhere that I'm still kind of wrestling through in my own mind is I totally agree that the words themselves are not violence. What about when the words themselves incite or encourage violent behavior in others? Can you give an example? Well, I would say, okay, there are places on the internet, let's say like 4chan, where people of a like mind get together. They have a Mm -hmm. bend towards violence. They're protected by free speech to hang out there and say whatever they want. Mm -hmm. Um, And in talking about, let's say there's one group that they're targeting and they are using a lot of language, negative language around that group, encouraging each other in the group dynamic there to the point where somebody is like, yeah, this can't, I can't do this. We can't do this anymore. And they decide they're good. They got to go out and take a violent action okay? because they're so informed by incited by riled up by the language of that group. So in regards to that, what is it that you're asking? So I I guess I'm saying I understand that speech itself isn't violent, but Mm -hmm. should there be any, monitoring of speech and language that have the purpose of encouraging violent acts in others. It's a, it's an ugly area for sure, because you're talking about things that certainly feel and and are ugly Mm -hmm. potentially Uh, anything that would, yeah, if it results in, but the result is the thing that's wrong. Yeah. That's kind of one of the tricky things about freedom right. and freedom of speech, as I would see it. Mm-hmm. And I could be wrong, but that's, I, I think that's how the framers looked at things was to say, you, know, you, you actually have the right to say stuff, freedom of speech, whether I like it or somebody else likes it. Everybody else has the freedom to listen or not listen. Mm-hmm. But in the moment with your action, because violation of someone else's rights requires physical action. Okay. Can you name can you name an inalienable constitutional right that we have that's violated 
without some type of physical action. No. And that's the tough part. It means that there's words we don't want to hear, Mm -hmm. but we don't have to hear. Mm -hmm. In the moment that someone would force you to hear the words, well, then physical action has been taken. Okay. To force you, now they're violating your rights. But they have the right, as disgusting as language may be, by them, whoever them is. They right. have the right to do that. And this this gets to the weird area, and I didn't know I was going to go this path this early. <laughs> but here we are. But I knew we were headed this direction. Um, it gets to this area of what should and shouldn't be legislated. Mm-hmm. What should and shouldn't be just up to people and free choice. And this is something... Really, for decades, we've seen where we were happy to help push forward legislation that agreed, and I'm saying we as a society, because we were more homogenous in our thoughts historically, I think, as as a greater portion of the country was tied to orthodoxy, Christianity, Judeo-Christianity thoughts, to where it was like, let's legislate... What kind of marriage can occur? Let's legislate all these things. And when when legislation agrees with what your beliefs are, it's like, yeah, mm-hmm. let's do that. But it's without the thought that, hey, at some point in time, legislation may not agree with what your belief system is. That's scary. And so then should legislation move beyond anything in excess of protecting the rights laid out in the Constitution, those inalienable rights laid out in the Constitution. And it's uncomfortable, maybe, to say, well, I, you know, because we're still looking at, well, I, you know, I want my religious belief, my personal belief reinforced by law because I agree with it, and I don't want to let go of that and let other people be whatever you want to call them for believing a different way. Um, But yeah, then the moment where that begins to disagree with you, now you're oppressed by law. Mm -hmm. It's just a big can of worms when at the end of the day, it's here are the things inalienable to you. That Mm -hmm. should be the only thing that legislation circles around is what protects you. Government should protect you from foreign threat, from threat of your fellow man and most commonly overlooked, it should protect you from the government itself. Mm-hmm. You move beyond that and things stand to get pretty weird over time. Not to mention, not to mention that when you rely on legislation mm-hmm. to take care of things, you are you're you're wanting to get away from responsibilities that are yours, but in order to do that, you're giving away freedoms. Yeah which you only recognize when the push of whatever it is, the majority or the loud minority or whatever else begins to go against what your core belief system is. So as our country as a whole becomes more diverse in thought, mm-hmm. that that's a greater and greater risk that people are going to be, their rights are going to be violated when we legislate too much. Okay. That's a lot. And I know yeah. that's a lot. It's a lot to think about. on the first point of the first yeah. chapter we're going to cover. Yeah. So in this case, yeah. it wasn't even government interference. In this right. case, it's college students feeling like uh, Milo, whatever his last name is, yeah. uh, thoughts and the, what, what he, the kind of speeches he gives 
were, they decided to preemptively out of self-defense, they said, um, cause this riot. And essentially, I mean, like they had to shut it down. He did not get to speak at UC Berkeley. Right. They had to shut it down for his physical safety and that of many others. And it didn't work because even by shutting it down, there were people. It's uncomfortable. The chapter details people that were physically beaten almost to death. Yeah. Um, And yay, Berkeley did crap all to go investigate anything as to who was responsible. And I don't know where police were either to do follow-up investigation because as the chapter details, there were both students and faculty who later celebrated that they were part of breaking the law and nothing happened to them. And it was, it was more the fact that there were no repercussions Mm. than the fact that they, in their protest, violated the rights of others. I mean, yeah, but then the fact that there was no repercussion for that only helped feed this beast of okay. of misbehavior. Well, and interestingly, too, UC Berkeley, it was sort of the birth of the free speech right. movement. Right. Now it'll be the death I mean, of it. <laughs> the free speech isn't a movement. It's a constitutional. It's celebrating the, the fullness movement. of what that constitutional point. Yeah, in the means. 60s, this idea of free thought, free speech, yes. you know, really this counterculture was born at UC Berkeley. The idea that, you know, that, that, that what we're talking about in this very book, that we should be exposed to ideas that we don't like so that we can, you know, it can build up in ourselves the strength to enunciate, to talk about, to take action against things that we don't like. But you don't do that by just hiding from it or not allowing it. Right. Kind right. Of thing. So, all right. You don't have to listen. You can argue against it. Yeah. All these things. But, yeah, then don't don't get your your protest can't violate someone else's inalienable rights. OK. Yeah. Yeah. Am I wrong? No, I'm still... You're looking at me funny. No, I'm tracking with you. But I am still thinking about this thing about violence inciting, speech inciting violence, but we got to move on. So... Well, we do or we don't. We do. We're on our own schedule here. (laughs) Do you want to go deeper? What do you want to look at? I'm just saying, me personally, I'm still thinking about it. You want to get violent? Yes, right now. Meg is a violent woman. I'm an abused man. (laughs) Clearly. Verbally and physically. I'd show you the bruises, but then I'd have to fact shame myself. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the Okay, next number two, and this is tied to it. Hardly any students say that they themselves would use violence to shut down a speech, but two surveys conducted in late 2017, which would have been after this incident, uh, these two surveys found that, a sub- that substantial minorities of students, meaning a a high percentage of a small percent of people. So 20 to 30% of those surveyed said it was sometimes acceptable for other students to use violence to prevent a speaker from speaking on campus. So we start to see this shift of like people being like, well, I'm not going to do that, but maybe other people. Yeah, it's a fine idea. I wouldn't do it, but you can. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Okay. Which is not that far from, okay, I'll join in. Well, right. Exactly. Yeah. Any thought? Any other thoughts on that statement? Okay. The Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, in which a white nationalist killed a peaceful counter-protester and injured others, 
further raised tensions on campus, especially as provocations from far-right groups increased in the months afterwards. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there's... This is talking about... It details in the chapter. um, There was some yahoo in his in his vehicle, saw a group of protesters counter to his right extreme, which we're talking again about hateful groups mm-hmm. on either extreme. Mm-hmm. Um, he saw a group, he stopped his vehicle, backed up to get a better running start and rammed into a crowd of, of humans. Mm-hmm. And this is where I don't know that I fully agree with the author that this incident further incited or not. I don't know. I know it was wrong. I know it was just as wrong as any other exhibition of physical violence, a violation of other people's constitutional rights, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, safety, all these things. Um, I think personally, I would view it as you're looking at the two ragged extreme edges of things, whether it's Antifa or alt-right or whatever, well, certainly the extreme edges are going to be the most incited when they see activity from the other side that seems like it's gaining any ground. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he keeps, the author keeps tantalizing and promising, and we'll get to that in chapter six. So we'll see. I'm looking forward to getting there and seeing where things go. Um, And understand, I'm not downplaying the severity of either sides. I'm saying you can't look at either side to provide any kind of even loose justification for the other side's activities. It's all stupid. It's all things that shouldn't have been stood for, but we're, we maybe get too busy with selfish endeavors rather than catching things in the moment of eruption and saying, okay, stop that crap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, In the fall of 2017, the number of efforts to shut down speakers reached record level. That's not surprising. I'm surprised that deserves its own bullet point. In 2017, the idea that speech can be violence, even when it does not involve threats, harassment, or calls for violence, seemed to spread. Assisted by the tendency in some circles to focus only on perceived impact, not on intent. Words that give rise to stress or fear for members of some groups are now often regarded as a form of violence. So coming back to your original ask of what about when a group incites people to violence, well, that's a real tough area to define versus when they explicitly ask for violence. Sure, sure, sure. Yes. I totally agree with that. And that's the the tough area is the part right. I'm still struggling with. If to me, if you're a a law enforcement officer, mm-hmm. this is where you're standing with your hand on your pistol, but you haven't drawn it because you're seeing, boy, we're getting really close to crossing the lines here and and needing some very severe intervention. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe pistol isn't the fair but that's, I mean, if I'm feeling, if you're feeling truly threatened from physical violence, whether it's a pistol, mace, a a club, a fire hose, or whatever it is that dissipates that. Mm -hmm. Um, What do you think? I don't know. This is, I totally am still, I I can track with what they're, what he's saying here, that obviously there are, there are instances where speech is like, there's a call to arms for lack of a better word, right. whether or not it's actually taking up arms. 
Um, but just, you know, the fact that there there is such a pervasive access to um, ideas that, again, on both sides that are encouraging, um, they may not come right out and say it, but again, I'm still thinking more about like that sort of group dynamic of you're going to have people who, when they hear this enough and become convinced of it, even if there's never an explicit call to violence, mm-hmm. that they're going to break off and decide they're going to be the hero of this group. And, Whose and fault is that? Well, I don't know. That's why I'm saying like, where do you not? And I'm just asking yeah, because I want to provoke conversation. Are you saying you don't know because you really can't cipher through it or because answering it accurately feels scary? You know, I don't, I just, is it incumbent on a speaker? Can you put the responsibility on every single speaker who's, who makes a speech, no matter how moderate or how extreme, the responsibility of how their listeners are going to respond and what they're going to do with that? No, I think that's a sort of terrifying thought too. Right. Um, it's hard it's hard. It's uncomfortable. It's hard yeah. to say speech is speech unless you're inviting people to sure. instructing people to move beyond speech into the physical realm. Mm-hmm. It means that we have to allow people to say shit that's terrible. Yeah. Because that is a right. Because the minute that you start legislating against it, then all that has to happen in the future for your rights or anybody else's to be violated is that the opinion of what's okay and not okay changes. Sure. Yes. Sure. And you know, obviously different religious groups are going to look at that and say, we need to have liberty in this to be able to say, this is what our faith teaches. Sure. Um, But even outside of religion. But what I'm saying is that if you belong to a faith that, you know, holds a belief let's just say the marriage issue, which you brought up, mm-hmm. then at some point there is that risk of if, if this faith teaches that marriage looks like this, mm-hmm. then is it, if you take this to the extreme, the, there's this idea that that teaching that what that faith believes could be shut down because it could be considered violent. Right. It, well, you see what I'm saying? Yes. Kind of. Kind if, of. Again, if you take this to the, but you can't extreme. assign violence towards that's where it goes right but you can't assign violence towards and and unless again unless you're calling to and it has to move beyond implicit yeah i think it has to be an explicit call to violence Mm -hmm. then there's something wrong with the speech Mm -hmm. because it's no longer speech it's just kind of a tertiary participant in the violence okay you disagree with no, that? No, no, I don't. Listen, you know I'm a slow processor. Well, I think hey, about these things. I am too. I'm not good at thinking about I'm a high. I require repetition through things, and I could, and I always reserve the right to change my mind. Yeah, I'm always open to hearing somebody present a perspective, but come correct with it. Don't come in here half-assed and will it, it hurt my feelings? So it's wrong, or you no? Know, come with some real. Help me, help me. If you think I'm wrong, help me. Help me, help you. Help, help me. me, help me. <laughs> it's it is it's tough and like I said it is uncomfortable but if we're anti-fragile uncomfortable is is good yeah I know yeah. I that's why I'm saying I this yeah. has been good for me to think through because it is challenging I 
um, very anti-censorship, very, very anti-censorship. And so thinking about some of this stuff is causing me to kind of look through this prism and look at all the different, mm -hmm. you know, we're just talking about freedom and responsibility. If you're very anti-censorship and want a lot of freedom for written language, spoken language, then what are the sort of responsibilities that are attached to that? So that's, right. that's all I'm saying is I'm just sort of thinking through what does this look like in practical application? I think it's critically important to appreciate too. And you said the word responsibility mm -hmm. that while you have as a speaker, whoever you may be, mm -hmm. some responsibility that every listener also bears responsibility because yes. freedom, it isn't free it's free in the sense that you may not yourself pay for it, but you maintain it through responsible listening, participation, research, consideration, dialogue, all these things. That's true. That's a great connecting point. I, as a listener, have the freedom to go listen to any kind of crazy fringe group conspiracy theorist. Don't right. take my conspiracy theorists away from me yeah. that I want to. But I also, since I have that freedom to access it, I also, as a human being, as a citizen of this country, have a responsibility to mind my own responses to that. Yes. And, and to not break the law. Not break the law, not violate someone else's rights yeah. with, your, with your reaction to it. And there are, even within the laws, ways to be against in a show, in a public demonstration to be against what someone says as a unified group without violating someone else's rights. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a big deal, right? Thank goodness. It's on us to solve all of these problems. Yeah, we'll do it. We're going to do it. Damn it. We're going to do it. Speech is not violence. Treating it as such is an interpretive choice, and it is a choice that increases pain and suffering while preventing other more effective responses, including the stoic response, cultivating non-reactivity, and the anti-fragile response suggested by Van Jones, who says, quote, put on some boots and learn how to deal with adversity, end quote. So I was talking with uh, our oldest daughter, who we're, we're starting through this book with us at the age of 15, even though it's, it's advanced material as we discussed it. Man, kids today, because of the internet, they are, going, they are being forced to have a far greater intellect than at any other time in history to suss through yeah. what's going on. Yeah. And so we're trying to begin walking through this material with her to help her grasp some of these concepts of anti-fragility and on and on. And and one of the things that I visited with her, uh, visited about with her today was to say, you, even and especially when it's uncomfortable, you hear what someone has to say, there's no threat to you that you have to believe what they say. Mm -hmm. What it should do in that, in those moments of discomfort the strength that comes from that is to say, okay, well, then I'm going to go look at what I believe. Mm -hmm. And one of three things is going to happen. I'm going to strengthen my resolve in what I believe. Mm -hmm. The least likely is that I'm going to reverse position and agree with this other person. Mm -hmm. Probably the most likely is that after examining what I believe in light of what they've said, maybe I find 
a slightly or even significantly greater truth than where I was, mm -hmm. that does not mean that I'm in alignment with them. Right. Exactly. But I need that stimuli yes. to otherwise I'm just going to be comfortable over here in my in my uh, cloistered group of ignoring everything and insisting other words or violence. Or yeah, or you find yourself in an echo chamber. Where That's the word I was looking for. I used cloisters, which is kind of what echo chamber is, right? <laughs> We're going to separate ourselves from the rest of language. Yeah, but truly, it is. It's um, allowing yourself to um, cultivate effective responses to things that you do not agree with. Yeah, is a great way to keep yourself out of the echo chamber effect. Yeah. And it's not comfortable no. for anyone, regardless of their Myers-Briggs personality type and yeah. how people... It's not fun and comfortable. Right. But damn it, man, growth isn't. Right. And if you want to be better, then you endure the painful stimuli that breaks some things down that forces you to look so that you can be better. Yes. And honestly, as time goes on, as you do that, it becomes just like working out physically... The, the pain, the fear, the anxiety becomes less and less the more frequently you practice this. To the point even where you have runners talk about a runner's high and things yeah. like that, where you can begin to really enjoy mm -hmm. someone saying a challenging thing because you're really beginning to anchor down in truth yeah. and figuring things out in a, in a defensible manner. And I think, too, understanding that hearty, um, spirited conversation doesn't mean you're arguing. That's right. I was in a subreddit reading a thread, and this was a very specific subreddit around a very specific belief system. And there were two people going back and forth, and one of them said, I'm not sure why you're arguing with me about this, and then gives her case again. And the other person comes back and is like, I wasn't arguing. I thought we were conversing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but there's such... Um, because our culture has become so tense around any kind of disagreement, it mm -hmm. does sort of frame it of like, well, now we're going to get into a big argument. It doesn't have to be a big argument. It's and, a, and to me, this is semantics. Mm -hmm. Because disagreeing and voicing each other's opinions, well, you can call it debate. Mm -hmm. You can call it conversing. You can call it dialogue. You can call it arguing. Yeah. To me, it's all pretty much the same thing. Now, one person may act like a real butthole. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't define what the conversation is. It just means that person has butthole tendencies. <laughs> and that's okay, too. They have a right to that. And if I can keep my cool and continue to engage throughout, and, you know, hopefully they don't go down the path of name-calling, but they may. Yeah. And that's okay. Yeah. It's not fun or enjoyable, but they may. And I don't have to. That's, that's where things can get a little more tense, but if you'll practice all of this regularly, then you get to the point where you're like, okay, whatever. Yes. Fine. Call me names. My last name is Teets. You don't think I've been called a few things? Imagine for a moment, if you will, what they might be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It happens. Yeah. I don't like it, no. but I don't have to go into the fetal position either. Right. Okay. okay. Should we move on and talk about... Do you want to get this last one? or I think this last one, and then we'll go to the next chapter. Okay. This is the last point for it. Okay. Uh, in, a, in the quotation that opened the chapter, which I'm not going to go read, Nelson Mandela warned us against the danger of demonizing opponents and using violence against them, like Muhammad Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., and other advocates of nonviolent resistance. Mandela noted that the violent and dehumanizing tactics are self-defeating closing off the possibility of peaceful resolution. But what if the goal of a movement isn't entirely 
peaceful resolution, but rather, at least in part, group cohesion. What might we see if we take a sociological approach to the new culture of safetyism? Okay, and that leads us into chapter uh, five, which is yep. about witch hunts. And this is where we tie back to our Salem. We talked about Salem, how timely that all this has come about. Um, humans in tribe, I'm sorry, humans are tribal creatures who readily form groups to compete with other groups. This was talked about in chapter three. Sociologist Emil Durkheim's work illuminates the way those groups engage in rituals, including the collective punishment of deviance to enhance their cohesion and solidarity. Mm -hmm. yep. And I honestly can't remember exact examples to talk through. You got anything to pull for that? No, but I mean, as we get further into this, that idea of the witch hunt, that is just on a sociological level. And I mean, we're kind of laughing about Salem, but you see this. Oh, it's a purely in, accurate and real. Yeah, you see it, it in, over. in small subgroups. I saw it in my high school youth group. In, right. You know, uh, any anybody who dares to leave the um, circle, yeah, uh, the flock, is up for punishment. And then it, and it, across. This is so fascinating to me sociologically across time and space, right? In human groups, this concept of the witch hunt has shown up time and time again. Maybe not always called a witch hunt, uh, right. but yeah, it's so in to the human experience. So, Cohesive and morally homogenous groups are prone to witch hunts, particularly when they experience a threat, whether from outside or from within. Yes. And I feel like, phew, tell me if I'm misremembering this, I feel like in the, in the text he discussed that prior to the Salem rich, rich, they didn't prosecute and murder rich people witch trials, Salem witch trials, that there had been outside forces and pressures. Am I? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, the Puritans considered themselves to be a um, uh, sort of, what's the word I'm looking for? They, cohesive they, group. Yeah, definitely cohesive. They left, persecuted group. So yeah. they left, the reason they even left Europe was because of religious persecution. So they already have this sort of culture of we're the persecuted ones. Sure. And so when they, a lot of things could be considered an outside threat. Any kind they, of. He mentioned something. Okay. I'm not going to go dig through, but okay. he mentioned something sure, sure, sure. going on. And I cannot remember, I don't think it was. Yeah. Native American, but there was some type of external pressure which only incited more right. sensitivity within the group. Yes. So that any deviants like wearing off colored lace. Yes. <laughs> or, you know, playing shuffleboard as a woman, mm -hmm. whatever, that that was enough. And they're just like, no, we got to stomp all this out. But when you are in a group that is very cohesive and especially centers around some kind of sheer morality mm -hmm. and very homogenous, very, we are, this is what we are, we are all the same. When you have any kind a person who is on the outskirts of that, that's where you start to see. And, and yeah. under pressure then is where yeah. witch hunt comes in. And I think, I don't know that he speaks, I haven't read the chapter points just from listening to the material. I don't know if he speaks to this directly or if it's more of a suggested thing that we should see is that in this weird, I call it weird, it's not weird, it's just different. This call-out culture that exists, this unhealthy yeah. call-out culture that exists is that there's a greater perception of homogeneity 
within the group because people are afraid within the group to speak out. Mm -hmm. And so then it's, I think it only makes then the, the ignition point for the witch hunt that much grander. Well, that leads right into this point. Is that what he says? Basically, yes. Witch hunts generally have four properties. They seem, uh, they seem to, one, they seem to come out of nowhere. Two, they involve charges of crimes against the collective. Three, the offenses that lead to those charges are often trivial or fabricated. And four, people who know that the accused is innocent keep quiet. Or in extreme cases, they join the mob out of fear. Yes. He did reference many instances from the professorial perspective where yes. uh, somebody, a, a professor, a researcher, an administrator at a university had made a statement that was taken horrendously out of context or even just not looked at at all and just railed against. Mm -hmm. And then others of their group, administrators, professors, all of that, who would privately contact and say, I'm with you, but I'm too afraid to speak up in public. Yes, exactly. He This in academia on several campuses told very specific stories of this happening. So for sure. And to me, not that it means a damn thing, that is the grandest form of cowardice that exists. Yeah. If you won't stand up for what you know is right because you're afraid of the repercussions, then you stand for nothing. Yeah. I agree. Sorry if that ruffles feathers of anyone. <laughs> okay. Not sorry. Not sorry. Next point. Only sorry that people would feel that way and not feel convicted enough in their beliefs to stand up for what's right. Um, that's a That's a great way to become national victims of something. Um, some of the most puzzling campus events and trends since 2015 match the profiles of a witch hunt. The campus protests at Yale, Claremont, McKenna, and Evergreen all began as reactions to politely worded emails and all led to demands that the authors of the emails be fired. We repeat, that the concerns that provide the context for a witch hunt may be valid, but in a witch hunt, the attendant fears are channeled in an unjust and destructive way. Mm -hmm. And that's, again, all the way back to just prior conversation today that says we can disagree, and yeah. we can disagree in a way that doesn't violate someone else's rights. Mm -hmm. Destructive is one of those words, and maybe don't assign too much creep to that either, but destructive can very quickly turn physical, mm -hmm. at which point you're breaking the law. You're violating rights of someone else, whether you think they deserve them or they disagree or agree, whatever else. Yeah. And I'll tell you right now, I speak passionately about this, but I speak passionately about this because I don't know. I don't know a lot of people that get more pissed off than I do about somebody strongly voicing a thing that I vehemently disagree with. But I have to monitor myself. It is not my right to violate their right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No matter how much I disagree. Yeah. More? I think we can skip that one because that just reiterates what we were just saying, that there okay. were people who are afraid to stand up and defend. Okay. Um, viewpoint diversity reduces a community's susceptibility to witch hunts. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Uh, one of the most important kinds of viewpoint diversity 
diversity of political thought, has declined substantially among both professors and students at American universities since the 1990s. These declines, combined with the rapidly escalating political polarization of the United States, which is something that will be covered in future chapters, may be a part of the reason why the new culture of safetyism has spread so rapidly since its emergence in 2013. And I think it's super interesting. He goes through the stats and figures of on college campuses. It used to be known that, yes, most academians are going to lean left politically, but there was a strong enough force of conservatives. I think it was like Mm -hmm. three to one or something like that for every sort of nationally, broadly speaking. I think on the heels of... Was it the heels of World War II or was it before World War II? No, it was after World War II. It was two to one. Yes. And then it transitioned to three and now it's like 10 plus, in some places 17 to one. In terms of the ratio of left-leaning to, Mm -hmm. or you know, you might say um, liberal versus uh, Mm -hmm. conservative. Mm -hmm. And so where there used to be a strong viewpoint diversity because... It's natural that, in, again, in academia, that if you're reviewing papers, if you're, you know, whatever the thing is, that you're going to approve of and affirm viewpoints that are similar to yours. Mm-hmm. But if you have enough diversity, then it kind of cancels it out. And, right. and so you get a more balanced view coming out. But that as um, viewpoint diversity has, like you said, vastly changed um, on campuses, then you start to have, even in academia, a place where it's supposed to... Uh, approve of and be a champion for viewpoint diversity that you have some echo chambers forming forming there. And then you see that also reflected in the larger culture is that we don't create for our own selves circles of viewpoint diversity. We section and segregate ourselves off into our own views. Allow me to suggest a perspective and feel free to poo-poo my perspective. Okay. I'm and I'm I'm asking as much as I'm saying because it seems like to me that it's been arguably since this time frame the 2010 plus range yeah. where it's the periphery edges of each perspective it is the alt right it is the true leftist of liberalism it's these ragged edges that have grown mm. Most. You think so? I think they've increased enough in size that it pulls, not all the way, but it does pull the entirety of the perspective a little bit. Because, again, we all, when when you consider, oh, I'm a this or a that, mm-hmm. you then have a, a series of statements that you are loosely bound to, to say that you belong to that group. And the more a ragged edge becomes... The more it grows, the more it's going to be pulling definitions. We said at a point now, and I feel like this was said by the author, but maybe not in this book. I've certainly heard it from others Mm -hmm. to say that when you look at Congress as a whole today Mm -hmm. and what it means to be conservative versus liberal, that those if you were to draw those as as mountain peaks side by side, that those two peaks used to be a lot closer. Okay, yeah. So that there could be real bipartisan. Yeah work done on things, but they're so far apart now that compromise, which God forbid would mean splitting the difference, which isn't a good compromise, (laughs) but that compromise is such that there is no way to compromise in that fashion because the, the, the core beliefs have drifted to such a significant degree. And I think certainly that has to contribute to what had to have happened 
to begun happening to America as a whole long before it began happening in colleges across America is that people didn't want to listen any longer, didn't want to have meaningful conversations right. any longer. They just wanted what they wanted. Yes, exactly. And they wanted to hear their thoughts echoed back to them. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I was going to, when you first started to say that, I was going to say, well, I just wonder if the fringes have not, if they haven't necessarily grown, but they've just gotten louder because again, if this. Yeah, they have a megaphone that's never existed. Exactly. But I mean, if, if some of the data suggests that even our representatives and what they're trying to do in our country, um, if they even have shifted um, for their part, then maybe it, even if the numbers haven't grown, I would absolutely say that the influence yes. of the outer edges of um, this dichotomy has created some shifting away from each other to where there is, it's very difficult to find a sort of centrist mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. uniting belief now. So. Which, which again, not, I mean, none of this do I want to be a perspective of doom and gloom and all of that. I think if anything all of this only exemplifies so much more the importance of dialogue, the importance yes. of being anti-fragile, to hear a thing that you may not want to hear, yep. but to hear it and then to go look at your own things and really give a scrutinous eye yeah. and commit some time to looking. Don't get so busy with our own crap. Well, I've got to do all these other things. No, what you got to do is take some time to look at this because you're responsible for you. Yeah, You're responsible for the kids you're raising for the people around you that you could influence with peaceable talk yes. to, to get minimally your circle. I mean, that's the thing. So many of us bemoan the fact that our culture is unable to have conversations anymore, but nobody's going to fix that except for us. That's right. Have conversations. I mean, literally me and you, we have to fix it's it. It's just Meg and I. <laughs> Join with us. We're starting, starting a new party. We are the circles of conversation or something. Super circles. Sort of super circles. That's it. Okay. okay. Uh, good job. I enjoy talking to you. Good convo. I had fun with this conversation, and I look forward to more. I know. It's only going to get better from here. But I, I will say, don't be afraid. I know you haven't looked at the chapters ahead. No. I, I don't want to spoil the excitement. Yeah. Well, it doesn't end on a doom and gloom note. No, so. it doesn't. I would know that simply because I've listened to other things from the author. Yeah. Who, even though, and it's maybe even especially because he has some very differing political opinions than I do. I appreciate that much more that having listened to him, that he can bring some sanity to the conversation that seems to be lacking in other areas. And that's kind of what he's pointing out. Yes. All right. Well, sign off. I have a sort of sanity afternoon and day, would you? And an awesome one. <laughs> well, awesome is sanity. Okay, good. That's right? a new tagline. Yes. <laughs> I'll make a shirt for it. Or I won't. Either way. Okay. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye. The awesome community is truly awesome. That is all.